0: What is a joy to be in worship with all of you this morning. And it really takes a village. We know the old cliche. Sometimes it takes a village to remember how to pronounce a biblical word. Sometimes it takes a village to run the camera when our director of media is out of town. So we're so grateful to Jess Boykin for being here. Sometimes it takes a village to lead the singing when the choir is off for the month of July. We're grateful to Aiden and Brooke and Alicia Luttrell for leading our music this morning. Sometimes it takes a village to greet and usher on July 3rd. We're thankful to George and Nancy for doing that. Sterling and I are always grateful for the many ways that you all are generous with your time and your talents that make services like this one possible. I have to say though, I'm especially impressed that Jess and Aiden are here this morning. I don't know if you know this, but they arrived home on Friday afternoon after a week at Blue Lake Camp. It's called Oakwood. And this is a camp that is jam-packed. They wake up around 7.30 every day, and lights out is at 11. But if you've ever been to camp, you know, that's kind of optional. You know, you have to be in your room, but it's fun to be with your friends and to be at camp together. So this is a camp that gathers annually with six or seven churches from all over our conference, and they gather in Andalusia Blue Lake for a week of fun, fellowship, Bible lessons, and of course, worship. When they first get there, they are divided into color teams. And these are the teams that they are with throughout the week for their competitions, for their lesson times, and the, the groups are strategically mixed so that people from different churches will mingle with one another. Throughout the week, amid the free time and all of the meals, they have devotionals by the lake in the morning and the evening. They have morning and evening worship in the chapel. They have breakout groups where they learn from all of the other leaders from the other churches. And they end the night with their church group reflecting on the day. This is the same sort of structure each year, but the theme changes. Well, this year, Leanne came up with a theme for camp, and she wanted to call it, Oakwood Upside Down. Does anyone immediately get that reference? I see a couple nods. Well, she had this idea based on the very popular Netflix show, Stranger Things. Some people know it. Some people have no clue what I'm talking about. Well, It is targeted towards youth-aged people and my-aged people, and it is set in 1980s Indiana, and there's this group of friends that are witnessing these supernatural forces starting to take place in their small town. So they begin searching for answers, trying to figure out what is happening in small-town Hawkins, Indiana. One of the biggest things that they discover is that there is an alternate dimension existing parallel to their world that is called the Upside Down. They name it the Upside Down. So it's exactly like their town, but it's flipped on its head. But this Upside Down, this alternate dimension is not a place you want to be. It is filled with evil creatures that are seeking to hurt the people of Hawkins, so these kids have to come together and figure out how to stop these creatures from destroying their town. So the concept of this parallel universe, this alternate dimension, Actually, translates really well to the Christian world. Some of you might be thinking "Oh, this sci-fi stuff, I don't have anything to do with that, but let me tell you as Christians we do believe that there is an alternate dimension of sorts, a parallel universe that is somehow here but also not entirely here yet. It is breaking through just like the upside down in Stranger Things, although The biggest and most obvious difference is that the kingdom of God, that is somehow mysteriously breaking through here on earth, is not something we should be afraid of, it's something we should seek out, to look for those glimmers of light that are bursting through in our reality. So our youth spent a week learning about God's strange, upside-down kingdom at Blue Lake. There are two preachers for the week, Heather and Rhett Butler, they're a clergy couple, shared insights from the Sermon on the Mount, and they focused on the Beatitudes, salt and light, and the Lord's Prayer, and how transformative that prayer can be. Our scripture this morning also highlights this strange, upside-down kingdom. And in this passage, we see the tension of what happens when it begins to break in, and people can see that it's happening, but they don't totally know that it's there yet. This is a story about pride, power, and expectations being flipped on its head. The first person we meet in this story is Naaman, the military commander of Aram in present-day Syria. He is said to be a great man, meaning a rich man, whom the king esteemed. This guy had everything going for him, power, status, wealth, connections, except for that one thing that he had developed, leprosy and we're not privy to the background on this. We don't know how he got it, how long he had had it, but we can kind of guess by where this story picks up that it is progressing, and it is beginning to interfere with his life. We can assume that he had probably done all he knew to do to try and get rid of this ailment, and he is becoming desperate. So desperate, in fact, that when his wife's maid a young Israelite girl, suggests that there is a prophet in Israel that surely could cure him, he listens. And not only does he listen, he goes to the king and says, will you send a letter so that I can go? You know, he couldn't do a telehealth call and have a private consultation with someone in another country or this prophet. He was in a really vulnerable place, and he had to cross into foreign territory to go on the off chance that this prophet could in fact restore him to health. So this young girl indicates that there is this prophet and Naaman, the text suggests that Israel wasn't really a particularly worthy opponent because it says that they have just conquered them. But at any rate Naaman is desperate for healing and tells his king what the Israelite girl has said and the king hoping he can do everything possible, sends money, the silver, the gold, in a letter to the king of Israel saying, "'Can you please help heal my army commander?' So Israel's king, when he receives this letter, panics, because he knows that there is nothing he can do to cure this man of leprosy. It doesn't matter that he's the king. It doesn't matter that he can usually make people do things or make things happen. This is something that is impossible for him. And so he actually rips his clothing as a sign of his public mourning and grief over receiving this letter. He is surely afraid that Aram is going to attack again if he cannot produce the result that the king of Aram is asking for. So he is sensing imminent doom that is to come if he cannot cure this man of his leprosy, yet he knows there is nothing he can do to cure it. But once again, Naaman is told that there is a prophet in Israel who wants to see him. Now we remember Elisha. Sterling preached about Elisha last week. Elisha was a prophet sent by God who in Second Kings 2 received the mantle of God, struck the river Jordan, and it split in two, just like Moses with the Red Sea. It is clear that the power of God has been at work within Elisha before, And perhaps the power of God will be in Elisha again. So when Elisha hears of the king's anxiety, he sends for Naaman to come to him. He says, send him to me that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha is able to reframe this mourning, this public lament, as an opportunity for God to show God's power in the midst of a hopeless situation. So Naaman arrives with his horses and chariots and they come up to Elisha's home and Elisha sends a messenger ahead of him to go and meet Elisha, to go and meet Naaman. And he tells him to go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And here again, we have a hurdle for Naaman, someone who is used to being powerful, who is used to having status and dignity. So not only is he in a foreign land now, but he is being told to go and wash seven times in the Jordan River, the Jordan River that separated these two territories. And so he says, can't I just use one of the rivers on my side? What about the two that I have? If water is going to be the healing source, cannot your God work through my water? And it's there that some of his servants, I imagine, kind of gently say to him, Naaman, Like, come on, like, we've come this far. If he asked you to do something hard, don't you think you would do it? Aren't you pretty desperate at this point? What he has asked you to do is easy. Just go into the Jordan and try it. What do you have to lose? In the healing, it takes place there, in the Jordan River. Naaman immerses himself seven times, and he comes out, and it says his flesh is made clean like a young boy. Can you sense all of the ironic reversals in the story, all of the ways expectations are flipped on its head? In these 14 14 verses, the powerful are powerless, the worthless are filled with wisdom, and the divine sees fit to restore health to a man that was not obedient to him, that had no relationship with him at all. In all of this, God was working through unlikely vessels to show God's power, to illumine the kingdom of God at hand. God worked through the prophet Elijah to bring this healing to Naaman. Naaman was an active participant in the healing by heeding the call to go and wash in the Jordan, but notice that the purpose of the healing was not for the healing itself, It says that the purpose of the healing was that so Naaman would know there is a prophet in Israel. In the verse that wasn't in our lectionary text for today, the one immediately following in verse 15, Naaman returns to Elisha's house with his skin and his very self made new. He gives thanks and confesses his newfound faith in the God of Israel, the only true God. This story really is highlighting the strange nature of God's kingdom, a reality where everything we know is flipped on its head. This can feel disorienting and even a little like injustice if you are the one that is powerful or superior in the world. You know, how I told you about those color teams that the youth were on at this camp. Well, they got a taste of this upside down wackadoo feeling justice during some of their recreation games. The leaders thought it would be a good learning opportunity to one day switch the scoreboard after they had competed. So imagine you've got the six to seven groups of these students competing for points. And you might think, well, what do they win if the color group wins? Apparently it's just bragging rights for the whole year. But who doesn't want to win, you know? So they're all competing to win. The green team wants to win. The purple team, the yellow team. So after competing, there is a clear winner who is set to get the most amount of points. But instead, on this one day during recreation, they totally switched the scoreboard. So you can imagine if you were the one that was in last place, it probably feels pretty good. All of a sudden you're winning. You've got a lot of unexpected points. But if you were the one on the winning side that suddenly got the least amount of points, well, we can all imagine that that probably didn't feel very good. This story of Naaman is timely and convicting on a weekend when we celebrate our independence as a country. For those of us who live in one of the most powerful and wealthy countries in the world, we should read this story carefully. It is a story that places the kingdom of God at odds with the kingdoms of the world. Healing leprosy was not possible with all of the power that came with being an army commander. It wasn't even possible for a terrified king. Yet God worked behind the scenes to bring this healing. God worked through that unnamed young servant girl to point Naaman towards Elisha, and then God worked through Elisha, who pointed him towards the Jordan. And then God worked through his servants, who pushed him towards the Jordan. And finally, God worked through those waters to provide a healing that was impossible for anybody else. This story reminds us that wisdom and insight often come from unexpected sources, and that anyone can be an instrument pointing us towards the kingdom of God. Now God knew that this upside down strange kingdom would be hard for us to grasp. But instead of like beating us over the head with it and getting frustrated that we don't understand, that we can't buy in to this opposite sense of justice, God sent Jesus to be a living fleshly example of what the kingdom of God can look like on earth. Repeatedly throughout scripture, Jesus lowers himself for the sake of raising up someone else who is oppressed or on the margins. Jesus shows up in unexpected places and he always is teaching people about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. In Matthew 23, Jesus says that the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is in stark contrast to the way that our world works. Usually the ones with power and influence are the greatest, but it is not so with Jesus' kingdom. Jesus demonstrated this least is greatest attitude when he washed his disciples' feet before his death. Jesus took on the role of a servant washing their dirty feet and showing them that he does not consider himself greater than them, the God of the universe. But Jesus' greatest demonstration comes at the cross. The creator of the universe, greater than all, gave up his life for creation. Rather than coming as the conquering king that many expected and would have respected and liked, Jesus came as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. It's hard to imagine a greater reversal than the king of all dying on a Roman cross, yet that is what he did. We serve a God who is so loving, so compassionate, so merciful, so kind, so forgiving, that it can sometimes feel strange. And yet, we have been called to emulate the same type of love and compassion and mercifulness that God consistently shows to humanity. So may we, like Naaman, lay down our pride, our expectations, our preconceived notions about what life should be like for the sake of healing, freedom, and salvation that's only available through Christ. In the name of God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.